0: Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast, the number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff, no more vanity metrics, live from India, made for the world.
1: Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. And this is me, your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how to identify your super consumers and also learn how to be thoughtfully aggressive. Yes, the very subject of discussion is a clear giveaway as to who our today's guest is. The one and only Eddie Yoon, the author of the best-selling book, Super Consumers, and the founder of Eddie Wood Grow, a think tank and advisory firm on growth strategy. Eddie's work over the past two decades has driven over eight billion dollars of annual incremental revenue. He is one of those world's leading experts on finding and monetizing super consumers to grow and create new categories. He has published articles on the HBR more than anyone on the topic of category design. Eddie is also the co-creator of Category Pirates, along with our friend, the amazing Christopher Lockhead. And fun fact, Eddie was born and raised in Hawaii the second legendary person that I personally know of from Hawaii after Guy Kawasaki. So without further ado, Eddie, this is your prime time. I'm so happy to have you here.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to be your second uh, favorite Hawaii person (laughs) or your second guest (laughs) from Hawaii.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I'm loving this. All right. So let's get started. You know, let's start with some fundamentals. For starters, can you take us through as to who are super consumers and how are they different from what we call as power users in the world of SaaS?
0: Sure. Uh, So super consumers um, is is one of these things where, you know, there's the saying uh, you can't uh, you don't really know a topic well unless you can explain it simply. And I've I've been studying consumers and customers for 25 years. And, you know, this is my attempt to kind of boil everything about customers down to something very simple, which is uh, super consumers are people who care a lot and spend a lot, uh, both their time, money and resources and reputation on a category. And so uh, these are what I believe are the most important people to start with to build your strategy. Uh, they're not the only people that you're trying to win over, but uh, they're kind of first among equals. And my uh, research in uh, consulting over the years has found that when you do it in this sequence, you actually end up uh, having the best chance to win everybody over because these are, frankly, they're the smartest people in the category. And so you asked a question about how they differ from power users within a SaaS um yeah perspective. They, they do overlap for certain, for sure. Uh, and I would say that um, when it comes to power users, uh, what that y- usually for most companies, it means a power user of their software or a particular software. Um, the main difference with super consumers and anything else that kind of sounds like it is that it's uh, measured at the category level, not at a product or specific brand or service level. So you might have a power user of one particular type of SaaS software. What you're really looking for is a power user across multiple types of uh, uh, SaaS, uh, whether it's uh, directly related or uh, you know even far away. What I find is that Uh, The people who are power users across multiple uh, SaaS categories are going to be the most knowledgeable, right? They can tell you the good and the bad and the ugly uh, when they have tried all the different options that are out there uh, because they just have that greater uh, wide-angle lens than uh, most people do who are power users of one particular category or product, so to speak.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Love that. But once I identify, say, about 100 of my super consumers, I can probably interview each and every one of them to understand their underlying why's and probably build my category based on that or probably sharpen my positioning or what have you. And that leads me to ask you this. Say, in a typical B2B SaaS kind of a scenario, how should one go about identifying their super consumers? Are there any specific characteristics or, say, parameters that one should look for?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, um, and and you know, your your opening comment about um, the whole uh, finding, you know, a hundred of your your super consumers out there. The reality is, y- y- you are looking for quality over quantity because um, the goal is not to just find out the whys, but the origin story. So, I, I always say, like, um, you know, uh, Disney has made you know over twenty billion dollars telling. Origin stories of superheroes uh, with their acquisition of Marvel. And what we're looking for is the same kind of thing is that, um, you know, uh, take uh, B2B software or SaaS users as an example. You, you're not uh, born as a SaaS super consumer, right? You, <laughs> you, you have to learn it somewhere along the way. Right. And um, that's what I'm most interested in is um, how did you become. The super consumer that you are now, and you know, kind of walking through that origin story from the very first time that you know maybe it's the first time you interacted with uh, SaaS or even uh, software of any sort of type from the very get go, right? That that's kind of what I find to be the most interesting. Uh, Some of it may go as far back as the origins of you know, when you first use any kind of a software, because um, what I'll tell you is that you see kind of these weak signals uh, early on. And, you know, some of its nature, some of its nurture for sure. But what you're looking for are the common trigger elements uh, and, and uh, trigger events that got people to say, huh, if I invest more time, money, resources, my reputation into getting good Uh, about this particular software, then there's going to accrue some sort of benefit to me. And so, um, you know, I I, I talk, I'll give you an example in in an analogous category. You had mentioned that I've written a lot for the Harvard Business Review. Um, Having spoken to them, uh, they have super consumers, right? Because it's the most expensive business magazine out there. Uh, They also sell books, uh, they have their digital website, they have uh, executive education, they have case studies that people buy. And when you kind of look at their super consumers, what you find is this common pattern of people who inevitably the trigger event was I just got a new job or got promoted or given a big project of responsibility and don't tell anyone, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And I have to fake it until I make it. And HBR is the greatest <laughs> way to figure out how to do that in the meantime, right? Your, right? your back is against the wall. You are both excited and scared at the same time. And you really just need a turbo boost in terms of your knowledge about XYZ particular t- content area. And so they'll dive into the free content, but they end up spending quite a bit of money on either books and reading those books voraciously, consuming the podcasts, case studies, Uh, to the point where they get enough content expertise that they feel uh, confident to go out and try it. And then, um, lo and behold, when you think about somebody who's putting that much effort into learning, guess what? They're going to do a good job. They're going to do a great job, in fact. And then they end up being uh, very successful uh, at that particular role. And then what you find is that you follow uh, the trace of that story is that uh, the reason why they are super consumers with HBR is that not just because of the rational education that they got, they are emotionally invested that, you know, they knew uh, I was uh, up against the wall. It could have ended very poorly for me, but thanks to HBR, I now uh, am, have a career that I, I love and I'm, I'm enjoying, uh, and it's, it's thanks to the kind of helping hand that a friend that I had behind my back uh, who gave me advice along the way. And they will be loyal to HBR for life and they will evangelize them in a way. And that that's the same kind of origin story that you're looking for from a SaaS perspective is like what was the trigger event, be it from a career, a job, a lifestyle even, or a life stage that got me to the point where like I have to push all my chips in the middle because this could make or break my career.
1: Right, right. A lot of this also, you know, uh, tells me or sounds a little bit close to the jobs to be done framework as well. Am I right with that?
0: Yes, it's it's very similar. And so one of the authors of uh, competing against luck, Taddy Hall, is a good friend of mine. And uh, we had actually done quite a bit of collaboration on the intersection between jobs and uh, to be done and super consumers. And kind of what the conclusion that we both got to was, um, you know, in some respects, the average consumer has a job to be done for a product, brand, or service, or whatnot. A super consumer, uh, they don't just have an average job. They have uh, what we would call uh, a quest, right? It's, it's not just a, I'm hiring this uh, to do a certain a particular set of benefits that I need. It's, um, we're on a mission together and we're going to go take that castle or, you know, it's a good versus evil dynamic. Like the stakes are just elevated. Right. And that, um, the reason why that's important is that, um, you know, in, 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 In Taddy's, uh, you know, in the book, the famous example is the milkshake example, right, is that, you know, uh, a certain uh, quick serve restaurant was trying to figure out why in the world are we selling all these milkshakes in the morning (laughs) in the drive through? And they figured out that uh, the job to be done was to relieve boredom in a long commute where people are driving, you know, 90 minutes one way and this and that. And that what, what what I often use that example is that that's the job to be done for the milkshake. The super consumer, somebody who is crazy, got a crazy commute and is trying to maximize the most amount of time there, they're not just hiring the milkshake. They're hiring a whole team of categories to solve for something that is much more important than just that one particular job, right? The milkshake might be there to solve boredom, but what they're actually realizing is that my commute is a gift, not a curse, and this is my time to educate myself it's my time to veg out it's my time to relax my you know it's my time to catch up it's it's actually one of the things that i do uh, personally is that i'm not probably the best son that i should be and that i don't call my parents as much as i as i should <laughs> but when i'm in a long commute that's when i most often talk to my mom you know i i give right. her a call and It's, I don't have distraction from the kids or this or that. And, you know, we have a wonderful time catching up and it's just a little bit easier, which is ironic because, you know, a lot of parenting uh, occurs in the car, right? You have your kids in the backseat and you're not actually looking at each other and it's not awkward. And you have these surprising conversations and connections that emerge from there. So maybe it's not a surprise that I connect with my mom still uh, in the car as well, too. But does that make sense as as the distinction is that I, I often find that super's Um, are far better at articulating not only what the job to be done is, but what the broader quest is and what the team of categories that they're hiring uh, to complete that quest actually looks
1: like. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And I love your examples. You have a gift of examples you know, that keeps on giving. I absolutely love this. And when I read about super consumers, a few things that piqued my interest was that I felt though a lot of what you shared in the book is geared towards the B2C space, uh, there are definitely a lot of things that can be adapted to B2B. For example, you talk about consumers falling into the category of rational and aspirational. Now, If you look at my category, like in SaaS, you know, most uh, sales discovery calls start with something like, hey, we are trying to solve for X, Y, and Z, and we are currently evaluating solutions. And throughout this discovery process, uh, though the prospect starts his or her journey with an aspiration for something, the buying process is often about comparing different solutions available. On the ground, the buying cycle seems to be more driven by rational aspects like feature parity or Prospect being driven by price or fit driven or whatever. So, can you talk through about how does a brand switch from selling rationally to start appealing to aspirations and start winning big? Because to me, you know, when when I think about it, selling to an aspiration in itself seems like a big aspiration.
0: Yes, it, it absolutely is, and it's the right aspiration. Uh, uh, selling to aspiration is exactly the right aspiration that every B two B software salesperson should have, and um, I, I would say that the the way to think about it is that um i actually find that um my experience as a senior partner at the cambridge group and you know just kind of being a consultant for so many years um especially the more senior you get the more business development you know is kind of part of your portfolio Correct. like it's actually very analogous in my opinion to the whole saas sales cycle in the sense that so how you get to the bridge from rational to aspirational i'll, I'll use some examples from You know, some of the B2B consulting work that I've done over the years, but also uh, my own experience as a senior partner who, you know, has built clients over time is that um, the the bridge to get there is uh, from rational to aspirational is emotional. Right. And that this is the whole key is that super consumers have an emotional investment in a category um and that's how one of the another difference that you can know a power user might be a power user just because they have to but they actually despise the category that they're working on right (laughs) um you're looking for somebody who just gets a kick out of it and they're you know they they like going to conferences they and it's not just machiavellian for a particular purpose that they they truly just enjoy it and so i i always um uh, you know, joke about my, my my example of stapler super consumers in the book, right? These are people that they shop the retail superstore, office superstore, even without a need to buy. Like, and that's what you're looking for is people who shop the category without actually looking for a reason to buy. And so if uh, one of the things that you mentioned about most discussions are, you know, uh, you know kind of product feature oriented, right. usually it's because there's an RFP. And if you're competing for an RFP, you, it, that's kind of not the place to pivot to an aspiration. I mean, sometimes it can You're already saying you're
1: a commodity. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. You're already saying that. So what, what I often find is that, um, you know, you, so usually when, um, so I'll go back to my consulting experience. As I said, um, I I almost never see an RFP at this stage, right? When I was first starting out as as a, as a new partner, um, RFPs were kind of how I, you know, that's kind of the lifeblood that you're looking for. And, um, invariably uh when you so the goal is actually ironically the the right type of customer to try to start aspirationally with is not the customer in an rfp process it might be a customer that you've already sold to and you're trying to have a conversation with them about other things it might be somebody that you know personally but you're not actually trying to there's not a request for a need and so like uh, the the When I was um, evaluating partners to elect at the Cambridge group, uh, there's a framework that I use that I was taught by uh, one of my mentors, Steve Carlotti, who was a senior partner at McKinsey. It's uh, the 248 framework. And so uh, what he would always say is like, regardless of a partner's performance in a given year, you looked at the health of the 248 pipeline, which was, did every partner have, uh, or potential partner have two live projects going on at any given time? four kind of active proposals that they are, have submitted or are working on, and more importantly, eight conversations with you know people who could be buyers of consulting, but there's no particular need or reason to be talking to them. There's no RFP or any of that discussion. You're just having a conversation about stuff that you guys both enjoy, not, not necessarily about vacations and this and that, but conversations about the category. So this this is the reason why that is so important. That eight is where you really really want to start the aspirational discussion. The two uh, could also be, uh, but I'll, I'll walk through how all of this happens. It's the four uh, that's probably the weakest area to try to convert from a rational to an aspirational one because you, you know usually the problem is somewhat defined and you're just trying to respond to figure you know uh, can I meet that need through this process. So let me let me start with the two to start with. So. Two, um, these are already clients that you have. So for, in my world, it was projects that were ongoing. You're trying to make sure that they go well and this and that. And um, usually in that scenario, what I would say in a B2B software context is like, you know, these are people that you've already gotten to sign the contract. They're they're rocking and rolling. And what you're trying to figure out is, hey, um, are you surprised in any way by what you bought? Right. Because uh, you know, I I often say consulting is one of the oddest B2B purchases in that you know you think you're buying a house and then the consultant shows up with a boat sometimes because the problem it turns out to be different, right? And <laughs> right, right. that um I, I would imagine that you tell me, yeah, in, in the SaaS world, some of it is not that far off, right? You thought you were getting this, but oh, I was pleasantly surprised by I get these other benefits as well, too. And I'm either geeked out about it or I'm not. Or unpleasantly surprised by these problems that emerged that I didn't realize that I had that the software doesn't qu- truly quite address yet. So
1: absolutely happens all the time. And sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm like surprised when I talk to certain customers and understand that, hey, you're using my software for this. I never thought of these use cases at all.
0: Absolutely. So what you just described is one of the best sources of innovation, right? So uh, Rogaine, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly used for hair loss uh, replacement or thinning and prevention was a blood pressure medicine to start with, right? <laughs> That's They were like, oh, there's a weird side effect that we hadn't anticipated <laughs> and this is what we, you know, realized it could be good for is that right. um, oftentimes um, that accidental uh, discovery uh, the accidental use case, that's the really important part. So, like, you know, um, the rational way of looking at super consumers is that, hey, the reason why they buy a lot is to go back to the jobs framework. They have multiple jobs that they use the category for. And that's the secret, right? Is that um, there's always going to be a rational job and there's going to be an emotional job and there's going to be an aspirational job. And only super consumers really have that trio that's there, right? So you get somebody that you sold into and they tell you, you know, I didn't realize I could use it for this, but I am using it for that. And then the questions begin. Well, why is that important to you? What? How does that make you feel? What is that trying to get you to accomplish? And that usually my best clients, right? When you ask them, when I've asked them, like, I know, you know, how is it that we built this relationship? You know, why do you, you know, I'm grateful for your repeat business. How does that work? You know, the, the most succinct answer that I've gotten was like, well, every time I worked with you, I got promoted and I got a better job <laughs> and you know, I had a great outcome. So why wouldn't I keep using you again right? with it? So it, it wasn't about you, you solved this business strategy question that I had. And it wasn't just about, you know, and I felt great that I was confident that I had the answer and I was excited to implement and go after the opportunity. It was the aspirational was like, you know, I I don't really know what exactly happened and who gets credit for what, but every time you're around, great things happen around me for my career. And uh, as a consequence, great things happen for me and my family. And So like that type of dynamic is what you're really trying to unpack is that when you have that kind of, um, you know, economics, they call it consumer surplus, right? You've sold in something, they get an uh, unexpected job to be done that's satisfied from it. They are delighted by it. Asking the whys, you know, how, how uh, did that happen? How did you figure that out? Why are you delighted? What does that do for you? Why is it important to you? Gets you to figure out, uh, aha, I can bridge this from a current customer to a lifetime customer, but also somebody who might be able to refer me to somebody else or give me an insight for an alternative use case that I hadn't thought of that I can now go back and remark it to other people about. So that, that's the, the two in the 248 uh, framework. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely love this. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you said also reminded me of my uh, conversation with Bob Moesta, where he was talking about how Snickers got completely repositioned and uh, they stopped competing with Milky Way and positioned the idea of, you know, you're not uh, you're not yourself while you're hungry. So that absolutely. whole thing came up because of that.
0: Yes, yes, and and you know, to 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 that point, actually, this is a really good example of what Bob's using with Snickers is that you know, um, what the whole kind of hangry, right? You're hungry or angry when you're hungry idea, right? Let's think about how further, how much further they could take that, right? From just confection. So um, are they solving for chocolate? Are they solving for snacking? Um, or are they solving for this emotional response of this hangry benefit, right? right. And that here, here's something, here's an aspirational one, is that how many relationships are problematic because of what I would call sneaky anger? So this is something that my wife and I always talk about, right? Is that you know, hey, you seem sneaky angry at me. Is it me or something else that's really upsetting you, right? So that you can actually diffuse uh, a touchy situation. And that, you know, this idea of um, solving for sneaky anger awareness and solving, you know, you know, who to thunk that a candy bar could actually be the best marriage counselor that you could have, right? That not saying that um, Mars and Snickers should go into the marriage counseling business, but they could, (laughs) right? right. And, and, and and it's not to say that, um, uh, uh, that that's an easy leap to be done, but far better than competing against Milky Way or a Hershey bar, as you said, is, is figuring out. like So basically, all I'm saying is that uh, Bob has rightly pointed out that it was a brilliant strategy for them. I would be disappointed if they didn't go further, but I wouldn't be surprised because here's the real truth, Yag, is that most companies are too scared. To go after the aspirational, right? If they move from rational to emotional, hey, that's a victory. Let's call it a day. They don't believe in category design. They don't believe a candy bar could actually help marriages and build families, right? Uh, because they don't—they haven't fallen in love with the problem, which is that sneaky anger is destroying the fabric of relationships around the world, <laughs> and that if you could actually figure out, you know, um, uh, how to solve for sneaky anger you know, then your market cap would be way, way bigger than just a candy company and the like, right? And that that same application applies to SaaS as well too, right? This is the whole thing about um, SaaS at the core is relational, right? The Oracle relational software, like in that collaboration is at the core of this and that figuring out how to make collaboration better through software, uh, build relationships versus tear them down. These are all things that, you know, tie into the aspirational that I think most software companies are going to be like, hey, 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 this is a little too far afield from me. I don't want to go there. But what they don't realize is that with emotion and aspiration comes pricing power. That's what people don't realize. And they, they, don't, uh, they might have some more courage if they actually understood that.
1: Absolutely, can't agree more with you. And uh, one of the things in your book that I also loved is that you say that a super consumer of one category can be a super consumer of nine others. And uh, while I completely agree with that, you also say... If more companies understood that, they would have changed their game from playing checkers with VC-funded cash to maximizing LTV. Now, I would really appreciate if you can help us understand the correlation between the two and maybe if you can dive into that a little bit.
0: Absolutely, and, and and actually, this will segue nicely. Or it syncs up nicely with the eight part of my two four eight framework as well, too. Right. So, like, so the, the super consumer of one is a super of nine category that was based on um, some big data research that I did um, with uh, Nielsen data. So, my my old consultant from the Cambridge Group was acquired by Nielsen a little over a decade ago, and um, that gave us. I was a kid in a candy store not to talk mention about Snickers, <laughs> where I had access to so much data, right and Around the world, anything sold in a grocery store or retail store they had access to, and one of the key things that we discovered was that um, if you were a super consumer of say vitamins that these are the other categories uh, the nine others that you were also spending you know unusually high amounts in. And some of which were within the categories that are adjacent, some of which were beyond right and so I go go back to the vitamin example in my book. I talk about um this is with using other data sets, like one of the other ones that i've used is a company called Varisk, which has 70% of all credit card transaction data and 40% debit card transactions. And, you know, here's where you start to see some really cool stuff is that if you buy loads of vitamins, you tend to have more life insurance than you need. You tend to have uh, bought a standby generator and you tend to have uh, more than one refrigerator or freezer, often three to four. And so these are the people when COVID hit in the lockdowns, they were like, I'm already prepared, right? These are the people prepared for the zombie apocalypse and the end of the world. And their their mantra is you can never be uh, too prepared to prevent something terrible from happening to your family. Right. And so it explains why they over-index on insurance. It explains why they buy vitamins because it's the same benefit. Vitamins and insurance are essentially a hedge against the future, but without any expectation of uh, payback or results down the road. Right. It's a total leap of faith. Right. And and when you find somebody who's make, willing to make a leap of faith in one category, you're going to find that they're willing to do it in other categories because uh, they have uh, inelastic demand and pricing power for protection. And so how that applies to uh, the, the SaaS category, right, is that uh, somebody who is a super consumer of SaaS so, um, uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example. Like, I, this is maybe a little too lowbrow for your or your audience, but I love Microsoft Excel. I've always loved it. And ever since my consulting days, like, I, I just think it's not just a rational product for me. I, I actually think spreadsheets are beautiful. And, you know, when when I uh, was progressing through my career, I would miss doing spreadsheets. I was like, oh, you know, like, my favorite roles in in my consulting career were analyst and senior partner. Like, those are the most fun that I had. And so, like, the idea of being a geek on, on, on spreadsheets meant that you were a geek of other visualization and software, meant, meant that you were a geek of, you know, other type of model building, uh, and it was it was is indicative of uh, a love for, you know, other types of programming, other types of logic, if, then. Like, it was very predictive of the type of uh, consulting and problem solving that I would do in my career, which was... You know, um, th- there's a there's a there's a feature in X- I'm, I'm sorry to go down this Excel rabbit hole. There's a feature <laughs> in Excel called Goal Seek and Solver, right, where you can set up a complex equation um, and have uh, more than one open-ended uh, variable. And it, do, it runs all the scenarios for what the what the answer could be. And so, like, that was predictive of the way that I solve for consulting as a senior partner, which was um, I don't need to know the answer. I just need to know what would need to be true for answer X to be true as well, right? And that the um, part of my success as a senior partner was the ability to – I always say, like, the goal uh, – You know you have a good senior partner when they can walk into a room with somebody they've never met in an industry they've never worked in, uh, talking about a category that they've never, uh, they have no expertise in. And in 15 minutes, they can leave the person that had the problem feeling much better about what to do next than they did beforehand. And, you know, it's a high bar, but that's what, um, if you can understand this idea of what, not what is true, but here's what would need to be true for your answer to work. Right, it's a totally different way of thinking, and I, I attribute it to you know my love of Excel. Right, and the same kind of premise is going to be true. So somebody who geeks out over SAS, and you know maybe we can brainstorm this together, Yag, they're going to be geeks about other things too. Some of which are obvious, some of which are not. And if you can figure out the other things that are obvious or, or the other categories that they are supers in, then your lifetime value goes through the roof because oh maybe you should be selling those categories. Or maybe you should be monetizing your relationships in a positive way that's a win-win for both of them, right? Because like, so I'll, I'll give you another example is that uh, Brinks um, is a, you know, you know the, the uh, cash uh, management company, you know, famous for their security trucks and armored vans, kind of moving cash around the world. Yeah. Um, they have a prepaid card business. So they're in the fintech uh, payment business. And one of the things that they figured out was um, if you ha- love the Brinks brand, then you um, and in particular, their prepaid card business. Then uh, you're probably going to over-index and, and a love for life insurance. Why? Because you're seeking protection. So, one of the things that uh, the, the head of North American Payments, Miguel Zapeta, has done is take uh, the Brinks brand. Um, they've entered the life insurance business. You know, uh, using the Brinks brand, using a third party to sell that. And uh, life insurance is an amazing business, by the way. Just it's a uh, you know 600 seven hundred billion dollars in the U.S extraordinary economics. And the thing that they found is that uh, the Brinks brand kills it in life insurance because people, are, you know, most brands they've never heard of, they're like, oh, I know the Brinks brand. And every lead they generate in life insurance is not only profit positive within life insurance, it is a free lead that they generate for their prepaid card business. And so, you know, uh, not only are they monetizing their lifetime value in multiple categories, they've reduced their customer acquisition cost denominator of the lifetime value divided by CAC equation. Because they don't no longer have to pay for leads and prepay. They're just acquiring them in another business and remonetizing it in theirs. And so you think about this. If you can really figure this out as a B2B SaaS salesperson, then not only can you figure out how to drive the top, the numerator of the LTV equation, but... Your marketing should not only not be a cost, it should not only be break even, it might actually be a profit center because your customers might have tremendous value for somebody in an an adjacent category that you hadn't thought of and making that introduction might be wildly valuable for everybody involved.
1: You know, this is super interesting and it makes me ask you this, like, say, for example, if somebody is selling a productivity software or, say, a collaborative software, now, um, what do they look for? Do they look for, say, a a set of consumers using the, the sales intelligence tools and identifying the set of people using a particular software and that category of or that particular selection of those consumers, should it be based on the kind of tools or should it be based on the emotional aspects, like, say, the example that you gave? In both the cases you were talking about people chose that product because they have a certain emotional value towards that. So do you go by emotion or do you go by why people buy that in terms of that particular use case that I'm going after?
0: Yes. Yeah. So it, the answer is yes, and yes. It's sequential. You start with the why they buy it in the first place, and then you go to the emotion. So, like, so take your productivity software example. So somebody's buying it presumably for, for rational reasons of it. You know, works great, works better than what I had before. Maybe it's a cheaper solution or it's a better economic thing or whatever it is. But like, so there's you know, you ha- you have kind of um, pocket aces so to speak in a game of Texas Hold'em. They like your product then you're trying to figure out how do you feel about it? Why, or said differently, um, if you are a geek of productivity software, then the real question is, why do you care about productivity so much? Like, why is that important to you? And the, the answer might be, I'm going to make up some stuff. You tell me if this resonates with any of your experiences. Is I value productivity because I value my time. And I value my time because we just had a baby. And I need to do my work better, faster, so I can go home and relieve my partner, or whatever, or spend time with the Like it might be a life event like that, or it might be, um, you know, what great debate of remote work versus back in the office. Um, I, you know, I was listening to your pod about introverts beforehand. I don't, you know, I'm an introvert, you know, and. It might be, I never want to go back to the office ever again, be on a commute. And, you know, these interactions, they, they, they cost right. me emotionally in my soul. And therefore, I need to make sure that remote work is always a possibility. And therefore, my productivity needs to be through the roof. Right right? And that's why I care deeply about that. And so now you have two hooks. It might be, you know, so let's take the baby example. You just had a baby. That's why you care about productivity. Why is that important? Well, it might be an opportunity to just tell the company, um, this is not just about productivity. It's about the war for talent, right? It's how do you solve for women in the workplace who have babies? Well, you know, Maybe if you have the best set of productivity software that makes you the most family, work-life balance, friendly place to work, right? And that gives you access to a whole set of other talent that you might not have been able to get. Or it might be, there's a whole set of younger consumers, millennials and Gen Zers, who never want to come back into the office. And, you know, Christopher and uh, Nicholas Cole and I in our category of pirates, we just wrote about native digitals versus native analogs. These are, you know, native digital people who value their virtual lives as much or more so than their real <laughs> right. lives, right? And it might be a set of consumers or employees like that is like, you know, I value the productivity software because it allows me to, it ups the odds that I can do remote work because I value my virtual life more than my, my practice. Uh, real life now. And that gives you a clue about other software, you know, AR software, virtual reality, things that create, digital uh, services and experiences that they value that might help you win the war for talent that way. Right. So like this, this whole question around productivity, like, why does that matter? Like, I'll give you one from my consulting experience in the B2B yeah. side, right. Was I was helping Emerson electrics uh, figure out how to sell smart uh, HVAC systems. So heating, ventilation, air, and uh, air conditioning systems, right. And compressors and valves, you might not think as sexy, but like, you know, literally um, they're super consumers. There, that two types. One was, um uh the real estate developer and finance executives that were they work for companies that could not figure out how to grow organically so they grew by m a and these are people in charge of the facilities and what drove them nuts is that you know yeah i might say i have a certain set of hvac systems that i like but we just acquired a company and the way they set up their HVAC systems is totally stupid and irrational. And I hate it. And I, I don't know how it works. I have to put out fires and it broke. And now I have to think about repairing it. But you know, I'd rather replace the whole HVAC system. Right. But I need to justify the cost, right? So, hey, salesperson, give me a total cost of ownership that looks like X, Y, and Z. I will give you, here's what it needs to look like for the sale to go through. And then you back into it. And, and in effect here, Right. What's happening is um, the rational thing to do is for the real estate person to say, "Well, let me do the cash flow friendly thing and spend it to repair." But what they're saying is, "Let me make a better long term decision to replace the whole darn system, which is better for the company in the long run." But guess what? Better for me emotionally because my job is less crazy. And this whole like this was a completely emotionally driven purchase to the point where the salesperson was instructing. I'm mean, so The, the customer is instructing the salesperson, do it like this so I can put it in front of my CFO so I get the stamp of approval to go forward with it, right? Like these are the things that we talk about is like you have to understand um, and have empathy for these emotions and that oftentimes I find that people who are in the B2B space – You know, um, that's the real trap is, you know, forgetting that the person on the other end is a person, they have emotions, they have a life uh, beyond the company, beyond the purchase. And if you can figure out what's going on in their lives and have empathy for it, then um, you're going to be a much, much better salesperson and have a customer for life.
1: Absolutely. And I would love uh, such a customer who would come uh, and tell me that, hey, you know, do it this way so that the sales goes through. (laughs) Love that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, um, one of the things that uh, you keep talking about that also has stuck with me, two of those phrases uh, from your verbiage are uh, thoughtfully aggressive and uh, radically generous. Now, in my head, these two phrases are pretty adjacent. For example, when the pandemic hit and Eric Yuan said Zoom is free for all K-12 schools, I felt it was both thoughtfully aggressive as well as radically generous. So would you mind uh, defining the two? Are they the same or are they like very close or adjacent? What do you think?
0: Yes, the, the, I, I find them to be yin and yang of, or, or you know, the, the the cartoons that have your little devil uh, on your shoulder and the yeah. angel on the side, like you need both, right? Because yeah. it, it, and, and it's something that I find that most uh, people are... They, they tend towards one or the other. Like the, one of them makes them feel more comfortable being aggressive, uh, but without the thoughtfulness part of it. And then, or they're generous without being radically generous. And so let, let me unpack both of those individually and see how, and show you how they come together. So you and I probably get loads of, you know, random LinkedIn spam requests for people that we don't know who are asking for them. That, those are people, you know, the modern day. You know, um cold callers are you know, that's just aggressive for aggressive bit sake. The, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not thoughtful at all. Yeah. And um the thoughtfulness comes in um as important as like, you know, you can be aggressive with people um if you're thoughtful about it, in the sense that thoughtful meaning literally I've given thought to who you are, what you're trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, if, if like, let's say, yeah, you and I didn't know each other and you had a sickness and I had the cure for it. There is a scenario in which I approach you in such a harassing way that you reject the cure and that, you know, that doesn't accomplish any good for anybody. Right. Um, and there's a scenario where I'm too scared to, because I don't know you or this and that, where I don't even approach and That's terrible as well. But you know, there's ways for people who have no relationship, if you're thoughtful about the approach and why you are trying to be aggressive, you know, it, all, all the usual things about a win win, blah, 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 right? That um, you might be able to say, look, you are welcome to ignore me. And I'm sorry to interrupt your personal space and your private life here, but this is how I discovered that you might have a problem that I have a solution for. I would love to be able to tell you about it if you're open to it. Right. So like this, this whole idea of thoughtfully aggressive, like, you know, it's, it's one thing to be aggressive with an offer and an ask like that. If it's for five minutes of your time, it's another thing to say, well, give me 50 minutes of your time from the get go. Right. Like this, right. this whole idea of bite sized things. And so like, um, I'll go back to my consulting example, right? Like, I can't walk up to somebody and say, hey, um, I have a seven-figure project for you and I, I think it'll be a great. Like, that's too much, right? But one of the things that I always say is like, I, I try to make sure that every activity that I do is a high ROI. You know, if I have a seven-figure consulting assignment, you know, my client needs to make eight to nine figures coming out of it. If, you know, if it's something in between, then, you know, obviously the ten hundred 100x so applies. But one of the things I'm pretty thoughtfully aggressive about is like, you know, if I see somebody with a problem that I think I can help with is I'll make the offer. Hey, you don't know me. My understanding is you have this issue. Um, I would like to offer you a a one page paper that I'd like to write that explains my, how I see your problem and how a potential solution might be. It's free. You know, no problem if you say no. And it's it's aggressive, right? Because you don't know me and, you know, I want, you know, who, who wants to be put, Given stuff to read, you know, you, we're all busy enough as it is, right? But it's a one pager. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's enough meat to be relevant and weighty, but not so overwhelming that it's going to take up a lot of time. Um, right. And uh, you know, and people are good people in general, right? That there's a, there's a goodness in like you don't want to take something from somebody that's going to take them, you know, days and weeks of time because then you'll feel obligated. A one pager sounds like, oh. It's I can it's bite sized and it won't be that much effort for that other person. So no skin up other than those. And I don't owe them anything. And so I might say yes, because it's free. And what I, I say that's a high ROI activity because it doesn't cost you much money or time or any you know emotion. And you might get a great return out of it, but because it costs you very little, um, the ROI is certain, right? So like that that's what I mean by the thoughtfully aggressive part. Like be aggressive. In a way that it can be accepted, with you know, uh, without obligation or other unintended consequences. Now, on the flip side, uh, radically generous is, you know, this is probably you, you know this well as a, you know from Asian cultures, right? Generosity is is I, I just in general find this is not judgmental, <laughs> but it, it's just generally more prevalent because Asian cu- cultures are much more about the community and the group than the individual western right. culture is much more about the latter right yeah. and so generosity is kind of well understood you're generous with your parents your parents are generous to you you're generous with your family there's an obligation that occurs when people ask with that so like but you know as as people who live in both uh, western and eastern cultures like you know generosity can be draining right? Like we all know what that's like to be generous to somebody who doesn't reciprocate.
1: Right. Taken for a ride. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, um, the, the goal is to figure out, um, when I say radically generous, um, what, what we mean by that is really, um, how are you generous in a way the, the radical modifier is so important where it is an overwhelming amount of generosity. So it's not like, you know, Hey, uh, Yeah, yeah. Like I'm going to give you a half-empty bottle of beer that I didn't finish. Like that's not really generous, (laughs) right? (laughs) But but I I give you something that you're like, wow, that really bowled me over. That that you would do that, but in a way that it's sustainable, that it doesn't cost you that much, so that you don't burn out on generosity. Because that that's the real problem is that generosity, when done improperly, turns into resentment, and that destroys relationships and business as well, too. right? Right. So. This is the trick. I, I always label it as the Costco sample, right? So when, <laughs> I think they are bringing it back is, is that um, there are people who go to Costco and they don't buy anything and they just would eat all the samples and leave, right? So <laughs> those people exist. So you have to take that risk. But um, the Costco sample is what, what, what I believe about it is, is um, you believe what you are offering is so great that a sample is good enough to convert people and that you know yeah you might get some people who take advantage of you but the overwhelming people well you'll be like wow this is awesome give me more of that and I'll pay for it uh, but the the radical part of it is like um, hey there's there's plenty where that came from right part of what I believe so strongly and why business people should journal and write whether you know if you can write for an HBR that's great but like you should just write more often. Writing is a muscle. It's exercise. All of that's really good things. And the reason why I'm able to give away a one-pager to almost anybody is that I just view it as exercise. It's, you know, whether or not, you know, if I gave you a one-pager, Yag, you know, and even if you said, this is the worst one-pager I've ever read, (laughs) I have no value from it. I would be like, I'd be disappointed, but I'd be like, you know what? Um, I am a better writer, having given them that shot. And the more writing that I do, the better that I will become. So it's no skin off of my nose to offer it to as many people as I you know, I can within reason with it. And so that's the whole part of radical generosity is really understanding, you know, um, the one pager, I think is so powerful. You know, um, P&G uses a one page memo. Amazon does, you know, like there's a lot of companies that uses memo structures as a way of synthesizing a lot of information. But like, I, what I found is that one-pagers can transform people's lives and outlooks and perspectives on a problem and give them hope where they didn't have hope. And it doesn't cost me much at the same time. When you have those two things, that's radical. That's why it's uh, radically generous. And so what, what it, it's kind of this interesting paradigm of how do you hold both ends of the spectrum together that seem contradictory? How can something be amazingly impactful yet cost you very little. And even if it, you know, didn't go anywhere, you'd still feel good about that investment because it's ultimately an investment in you. And on the thoughtfully aggressive side, how can you be aggressive um, in in reaching out to people that you don't know and kickstarting relationships, but in a manner where it can be received without obligation and contextualized in a way that you might actually up the odds of having an impact? And, you know, guess what? One of the best ways to be thoughtfully aggressive is with radical generosity, and that's how the two go together, right? right. Is you, you when you can figure out, you know, I I, I don't know Yag, but I think he has an issue that I can help with. Let me frame it up as an offer that um, he won't feel obligated by, and we'll give it a lark, and we'll feel like it's high ROI thing. And and, and let me do it through something that's radically generous, like my one pager, because. It could have an outsized impact on his life, and it won't cost him anything. It doesn't cost me much, and even what it does cost me is an investment in myself. and when you pair those two things together, you have kind of the ultimate salesperson, right? Yeah. <laughs> is somebody who can build relationships with almost anybody in the world and do it in a sustainable fashion that makes everybody involved feel great.
1: I think that is the exact iki guy that uh, Zoom fit in when the pandemic hit.: Yes, yeah, absolutely. All right. So absolutely loving this. I think you know we can go on and on. So now that we have hit the 45 minute mark, uh, let's quickly rush into the next section of the podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. And I'm going to post five lightning questions at you and try my best to put you on the spot. So are you ready for that? Absolutely. All right. So here's question number one. Here's something that you said, uh, reading which I said to myself, I really, really need to interview Eddie. And here's how it goes. Marketers can actually evangelize real category problems versus just being another member of the Kardashian family. So can you Maya, explain on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um the you know the Kardashians you know I don't know how uh, your audience feels about it but you know <laughs> this is the whole category of people let's say we like, don't the, use you
1: know. uh, the Kardashian style of marketing in the positive sense so <laughs>
0: yes 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 well you know it, it's you know it's it's just people who are f- trying to be famous for the they're famous for the sake of being famous and not for any particular skill now you know you can argue some of them have made it work or whatnot but like what I find is that at the core of what I mean by the Kardashians is is this self-promotional look at me uh, said differently. I, I always say every brand and business and executive is on a scale of missionary to mercenary. And most brands are mercenaries. That, that's been my general experience is that, yeah, they'll talk about stuff that is beneficial for you, but they're really, you know, it benefits them. Like one way of describing it, you know, yeah, there are people that you meet where you always feel like, wow, you know, I I always feel like I get more out of that interaction than they took away. And you'll meet with those people forever. Right. And then there are the people who are like, what just happened there? I just feel drained. (laughs) They just took and took and took and never really reciprocated. And that's how I think most customers feel about brands that they buy from, is that you're just here to take from me. Um, Maybe if I get something out of it, it's an accident on the way to your own mercenary (laughs) goals, right? Right. And so this is the whole thing about what um, marketers, I I find, um, miss the mark on is that when they were on their way up, uh, the only way they could get people's attention was to talk about the problem. And this is often the case with companies that are established or large, and you have shareholders and quarterly requirements is, hey, I got to feed the beast. The machine has to keep going. It has to be about me. And that's when companies lose their way. And so what, what I always say is that, you know, it, it go back to our thoughtfully aggressive thing is that, um, uh, you know, if I approach anybody with solution, 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 you know, if you have a solution, you're not, you're going to ignore me. If you don't know who I am, you're going to ignore me. If, you know, you think I'm out for myself, you're going to ignore me. But if I talk about the problem and I fall in love with the problem and I just say, you know what? Don't you just wish B2B software was, you know, was different. It was like, if it wasn't for for this problem, it would be blah, blah, blah. Then regardless of whether you have a solution or not that is working for you, if you find truth in the problem, you're going to resonate. You're going to want to talk more about that. And that's the whole thing is that um, most marketers want to have a monologue. Great marketers want to start a conversation and a dialogue. And usually that centers around the problem and not about them
1: right absolutely i love this you know in fact uh, you almost answered the next question that i was uh, going to ask you so anyway here's here's question number 2 you know you just spoke about missionaries and mercenaries what's the line of difference where a company goes from being a mercenary to becoming a missionary
0: yeah it it's tricky it's it's um and because you, you know there's a saying i heard in a in a sermon once is that you know that that, that there's that seven deadly sins right like um <laughs> that uh greed is the only seven deadly sin that you don't know yourself if you're being greedy like obviously if you murder someone it's not like you're like oh i didn't know i was murdering somebody <laughs> like you, you obviously know you're murdering somebody right. but it's incredibly hard to know if you're being greedy and It requires you to get somebody else to look at your life that you trust and say, hey, you know what? You kind of overdoing it here, right? And it's one of those things that, and I think is the case with the mercenary missionary thing. How do you find the line? You got to ask somebody else and you got to ask people to hold you accountable to it. And um, oftentimes, you know, it's, you know, you hold each other accountable within the categories. Like, why are we doing within your company, rather? um, Why are we putting this new update out? Is it to really solve the problem in the category? Is it just to get people to spend more money and trade up? Right, like when you know it's you know it, it's hard to argue with the you know Apple that Tim Cook has built, but sometimes it does feel like the latest iPhone is just. Yeah, just there to get me to trade up, right? It's not mm-hmm. actually revolutionary in terms of the category problem, and, and and you know, and so that that's where they're having to find it in services and other adjacent things to to really solve for that. But like, I, I would say this is that where you find the line is the you know when people talk about founders being extraordinarily important for companies and that that founder led companies do better. Uh, founders, more oftentimes the case are people who are themselves uh, hate the problem, have a love hate relationship with the category problem, and are in a never ending quest to solve for it, right? So the founders can be extraordinarily helpful. Right. It's the people who join. It's the people who are there, um, hey, it, it, here's the central question that I would ask is that if money was no object, you know, uh, what is it that you'd be doing that you would jump out of bed at six am and be super excited to do, you know, just because. And um uh, there was a woman, uh, Polly Kowalik, who who ran Quaker uh like twenty years ago plus. Like she was the one who taught taught me about that. And and I, I think that's the real key is you remove money from the equation, remove your salary, your bonus, your stock options, you know, whatever, uh shareholder return. Would you still be doing this if it was no object, And would you be willing to jump out of bed? Like That's to me the central question that I would ask is like, if we had no revenue or profit upside from this, would we actually still be doing this and be excited to do this because we just totally dig it? And that's a good sign that you're a a missionary, not a mercenary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, Lockett talking about this from the example of, uh, you know, Salesforce, where he said uh, Benioff spoke, uh, Benioff behaved as if he was the prime minister of the cloud and not as the CEO of Salesforce.
0: Yes, 100%.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Perfect example. Amazing. So here's question number three. You offered to pay your seventh grader for chores in cash or crypto and Luke chose to be paid in Bitcoin. So that is super interesting to me. How did you explain crypto to him?
0: Well, uh, not well, <laughs> <I will> say, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge to, you know, my kids are all teenagers now. It's a challenge to engage any of them in conver- real conversations. But basically, um, what, what I said to him, is said, look, the, look at the money that you have. Um, because, uh, we've, we've had this kind of, uh, uh, personal pa- parenting, child investing thing for a while. So he was an early investor in Tesla um, when he was in elementary school, which wow. has worked out great for him and the like. But like we we would do these things. So I, I have to walk back my journey. Is like when they were young, you know, I'm I'm from an immigrant family, and I knew that my kids would not have the same mindset as I did. Right, you know, kind of poor immigrant. Like how do how, you know, how, you can't replicate that. My kids have way more than I ever did but um i can do my best to try to teach them the value of of not just money but you know assets that appreciate and versus not and so um one of the things i would do is like let's invest in category creators and i'll i'll match you every dollar you put in i'll i'll give you 5 to 1 right so and and you get the appreciation, I'll take my initial capital back. And so each of my kids, you know, I would present them three category creators and they would just pick the one that they liked, you know, for the, the thinking being. You might actually follow a company that you're personally interested in, and so they're they're not like reading 10Ks or anything else like that. So I don't know if any of them will actually go into finance or be investors. But with Luke, what I explained to him was like, look at your Tesla stock; it went from X to Y. And so I think I think he got in at uh, when it was a split-adjusted forty-one dollars, and I'm like, wow. look, it's trading to your <laughs> seven hundred now. You know, and and he loves candy, right? He you know it, it like he loves going to the candy store, and so and. He knows the cash is somewhere in between. So I, I, I would just try to, you know, like you, I can't get my kids to understand, you know, uh, uh, financial statements, but I can get them, you know, to, to understand stories. I can get them to feel things. Right. And so the, the what I was trying to get them was here's how it feels. Right. Is you, f- you know what it feels like to watch something go from forty one dollars to nearly seven hundred. Um, you know what it feels like to eat candy. And you know that cash can go in either direction. I said crypto is like your Tesla stock. It's some. It's it's somewhere in between the cash and Tesla stock. And and so I I wasn't you know I I tried to give a cursory explanation of blockchain, you know a cursory explanation of like gold and the financial standards. But I was just trying to get them to feel like this is what it feels like. Candy you eat it you feel great and then it's gone, and you know you never get it back. Cash you can do something in between, but it's 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 you know doesn't go up. Um, you know, in theory, it goes down over time, right? Uh, but you know, it's pretty stable. And and he's watched his Tesla stock go up, go down, go sideways. I'm like, so basically, it was trying to explain the you know the the marshmallow problem and the volatility through feelings of like it's somewhere in between. Which feeling do you want for this particular chore? And he was able to make a decision based on that. Um, and so that—that's how I did it. Time will tell to see if that was actually the right way of doing it or not.
1: So. No, this is amazing. I wish you know I had uh, someone who explained me things way back in two thousand five or six uh, because I—I I would have taken little more interest in finance back then. <laughs> <laughs> Love this. All right. So here's question number four. And this is slightly controversial. You know, sometimes category creation can turn out to be the act of laying the foundation for better funded companies. For example, uh, Eloqua created the category for marketing automation, but Marketo and HubSpot came in later and became massive players. So what makes someone a category leader versus being a category designer?
0: Yeah, no, th- that's a great question. And it, it's um, when Christopher and I first met, that that was actually one of the core things that I realized like, oh, wait, I, you know, a, a lot of my work was around the design and creation of it and not enough of it was, well, how do you make sure that you're the category queen uh, and right. you get the benefits of all your work? So, so the more recently uh, we've been collaborating, it, there, there are really three things that I found that, um you need to do like that, you know, had Eloqua done, then maybe they would have ended up in a different scenario. So, and, and it fits with Christopher's magic triangle, but the way that we talk about it is uh, you need three key ingredients. It's um, a breakthrough product or service innovation. You need a breakthrough business model and you need a breakthrough data flywheel uh, that helps you predict the future of the category. And so what what I often find is that most category designers who fail to be the leader, have only one out of the three, right? I have a great product, but my business model is conventional and therefore somebody with better resources can copy my product or, or swamp it, right? or I have a great business model, but my product's not differentiated, or I have both, but I don't have the data flywheel so that I can see the future of the category before anybody else does. And what I have found is that when you can check all three boxes it's pretty hard to not be the category queen in the sense that um, I, I think this is the thing that most people uh, get wrong is that they think it's the first one. Category design is really about innovation and product innovation. And the good news for a real category uh, creator is that um, the vast majority of the content out there is either, you know, uh, pseudo category creation. Let me Market as if i 've created something new, but it 's still the same old same old <laughs> right. uh, creating a great product that we 're super proud of the tech with, but you know uh, we make money the exact same way as everybody else, and uh, therefore uh, somebody who makes more money than us can crush us right so um, uh, and, and, and so like the i 'll use Starbucks as an example here right so Starbucks, um, you know, one of the great category creators in that um, people think of them as a coffee company. I think of them as a uh, milk company disguised as a coffee company because they sell much more milk than they actually do coffee. (laughs) You (laughs) you think about what you pay for in a coffee drink, right? It's like, yeah, they're charging you for that tiny shot of espresso and the premium coffee that's there. But it's the same old milk that they use for everything else that's, you know, comprising the 80% of the volume of the thing there. Right. But, you know, one of the great things that they've done with their app is um, uh, the amount of cash that they hold on it, right? Is that they have at any given time, billion, billion and a half dollars of cash that consumers are giving to them for free as an interest-free loan. Uh, It becomes negative working capital that they can use in a variety of different means. And I think uh, think probably they've stopped reporting it as, as concretely, but like, um, I think in a recent year they made about 140 million dollars of margin, both based off the float uh, of managing the interest off the interest-free loan that consumers gave them, but also because of breakage. So, you know, in the gift card land, you know, you buy a gift card, a lot of it doesn't get used, and after some period of time when it's unused, you get to claim it as revenue. And the Starbucks app is no different. And so, you know, this is the key thing: is that they have a breakthrough product. You know, their stores are great, the product is great. Um, but the way that they make money, their business model uh, is not just the conventional ways they you know as I mentioned cool innovation right I, I charge you uh, the same premium on milk that I do for coffee that 's a cool one yeah. but uh, they're a financial services company right you know in addition to being a retailer, in addition to being a coffee company. And um, you know, and, and what they can do uh, with, I think what they're trying to do now is they have a data flywheel. Now that they know um, how much cash you store, they know what beverages you like, they know how you want to get them. Is it, do you want to come into the store? Do you want to do a drive-through? Do you want to order in advance and pick it up? All of that stuff is incredible information that helps them design the future of stores. And that, um, I, I often say that that Starbucks is an incredible canary in the coal mine i have a client where they realized that in this particular zip code when the number of starbucks within a zip code crossed from three or less to four plus that it was a great time for them to invest in their category right there like you know starbucks as a company throws off an immense amount of data both that they use internally but other people can use but this is the thing that i find that most companies not only you know not just b2b software companies don't realize is that you have to have a differentiated offer Ideally, you make money in more than the conventional way and in different ways than other people make money. And you capture data in a different way, but also data that's not just data for data's sake. Most big data exercises are a lot of (laughs) navel-gazing, but it's predictive of where the category is going. That's what you're really trying to figure out. And if you know where the future is, you make money differently, and you have a differentiated offer, then it's almost impossible for somebody else to catch up to you
1: absolutely can't agree more. And the example is mind-blowing. I, I absolutely love this. And um, you also laid the foundation for my final rapid-fire question. So here it comes. You know, most statistical numbers that we come across are normalized, but you say that um, spikes in the data are where the good stuff is. So can you explain what that means?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, my my two, the words in business that I hate the most are national average. Like I, I just <laughs> despise that, right? And, and and it and it's the, you know, it's all the nooks and crannies in the data that are so, so exciting to me. And so, you know, an, an average, you know, it's helpful, right? But it, it's basically a dumbed-down version of what's actually going on. And um, you know, most senior executives, I remember when Jim Kiltz was the CEO of Gillette before they sold to uh, Proctor, like you know he, he made the assumption he's like look i i just have to assume that every number that i see has been manipulated by my direct reports in some way shape or form with an agenda attached to it so he would roam the halls talking to lower level people to you know and basically just sort of ask them questions so he had the, you know the direct scoop for what was actually going on right and that the average f- functions in the same way there's an agenda behind it usually
1: yeah, yeah skewed towards an outcome yeah
0: Absolutely. And what you're really looking for is not reversion to the mean. It's, well, where are my supers and what's going on there? And the supers are in the spikes. And then where are the non-consumers or the light consumers? Those are in the valleys. And what you're trying to figure out is how can my supers become evangelists for the people who aren't buying? And, and how do I get that, that particular flywheel to work? And that, um, the you know example that I give is like, w- one of my favorite analyses to look at is per capita consumption by zip code. I mentioned the zip code thing yep, earlier, yep. right? So I'm from, uh, born and raised in Hawaii. Hawaii is the uh, highest uh, state uh, per capita consumption of spam. <laughs> so, oh, I didn't know that. You know, you, yes, yes. And, and Korea is one of the highest countries per capita consumption for spam. So as a Korean American from Hawaii, like I have a double whammy there. And um, you know, the question becomes, why is that the case? When when you look at that data anomaly, you're like, well, okay, um, both have a military presence. You know, both had long ship, shipping times. For, you know, w- from a food perspective, with Hawaii not its own food source, and Korea from the from the Korean War had a problem there. High degree of Asians and you know, savory, salty food and the like there. And so now you have the ingredients for, if I can find a place in not Hawaii or Korea that has a large military presence, you know. Um, you know, uh, kind of a, a food desert-esque-like quality in a high degree of Asians, then I'm going to find a parse that I can sell out of spam, <laughs> right, even if they don't buy it right now. And that's what you're really looking for. It's the same kind of a thing as if you just have an average, you're, there's no story there, right, because you've amalgamated everybody's story into one. When you have spikes and peaks and valleys, there's a story there. And the goal is to figure out why is that the case there? Um, What are the uh, primordial ingredients that drive and create the demand and can I replicate it somewhere else? It's the very essence of the scientific process, right? As I look for an anomaly, I form a hypothesis and I try to test and see if I can uh, replicate it elsewhere. Um, When you have average, then you have average thinking. When you have anomalies, then you have asynchronous and uh, anomalous insights that drive uh, extraordinary growth.
1: Right. Absolutely love this. And uh this is so amazing you know uh, we have almost uh, spoken for more than an hour and covered so much of information i'm absolutely loving this but before i thank you and let you go i want to ask you one more question um like is there a parting message that you would like to share with our audience
0: i would say um your whole f- uh, question around being thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous i i would say you know those if you can really understand how each of those work in at the individual level and how they work together, I guarantee you you'll be successful in whatever venture you do. Right. Um, it, it's the, that was kind of my conclusion of when I was a senior partner, how would I know if somebody was going to be a great partner? There are people who are thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous. And those are the people who are amazing uh, consultant partners. And um, I think it's, but you know, True of any uh, uh, profession, field, profit, nonprofit. So I, my hope is that people really take that to heart. And what I would say is that you know our version, as you talked to Christopher, our you know category pirate Substack that we're doing now is really all about that. Is what we're trying to do is figure out. How to take everything that we've learned collectively over the years around business and category creation and design and put them in a format where we can be thoughtfully aggressive, where there's a free product and a paid product, but also, you know, radically generous. Like we put some of our best stuff out there for free and we, we put the content that we were writing for a book out there for free when we promote it because our basic premise is, um, we are in love with category design and, 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 and the problem that most businesses have. And we have thoughts about that. And we can't really test our thinking unless we put it out there and let other people react to it and try it out there in the marketplace. And so that's our real hope is that people, you know, join us in this kind of journey to be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous around category design, uh category creation and super consumers. That we've a, a lot of theories but we don't have enough people to help us test them out and that's what I was so excited to talk to you about it, Yag, because like I, I just feel like, you know, uh, there are, there are a few categories that are as, you know, got a strong tailwind and as profitable as the SaaS category out there. And so um we think it's a rich opportunity for all of our ideas to be tested. And I'd be thrilled if, uh, you know, anyone in your audience, you know, test these ideas out, give you feedback, let us know how it works so that we can create more ideas to give away and test out in the marketplace again. So yeah, that's our hope.
1: Yeah, absolutely love that. And thank you so much for that message that resonated with me. And I'm sure it's, it's resonating with a lot of people who are listening to this and uh for our uh, listeners, if they want to get in touch with you or have any further questions, what's the best place to connect with you?
0: Sure. You can um, find me uh, Twitter at Twitter uh, at Eddie Woodgrow, E D D I E W O U L D G R O W. You can ping me at uh, Eddie at Eddie uh, Or, you know, as we, you know, we want to be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous. Um, you'll see all of our thinking on LinkedIn and/or our category pirate substack um, and, you know, reach out to us via social or via email. And we'd be glad to, you know, hook you up with a free trial because you're one of Yag's listeners and we want to be generous that way too. So,
1: Amazing. Love that so much. And um, thank you so much, Eddie, for being with us today and really, really appreciate your time and the nuggets of wisdom.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yag. I-, I had a lot of fun.
1: Right. So for the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us in this episode. And we'll connect with you the next time with another topic and another guest. Until then, this is bye from me, Yog. Have a good day and take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you.